Good morning, guys. Uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, we're going to be picking back up in our series in the book of Genesis. And so uh, we're kind of making a big turning point now in the book of Genesis. So uh, kind of like uh, we described in week one of our series, Genesis is kind of broken up into two halves, uh, two units. So Genesis chapter 1 to 11 is kind of the first unit, and then Genesis chapter 12 to 50 is the second. And uh, the way you can think about it is that Genesis 1 to 11 is like a wide lens view of God's you know, plan of salvation. It's a big picture. And then in Genesis chapter 12, uh, the uh, we kind of zoom in on one particular family and God's plan of salvation begins to come into focus and a clear focus here in Genesis chapter 12. So before we jump into that, though, I want to recap uh, Genesis 1 to 11, kind of what we've been over. So we saw in Genesis 1 that God created man uh, and woman in his image. Uh, he created uh, human beings to exercise dominion over the earth as stewards. Uh, he said, be fruitful, multiply, uh, fill the earth and subdue it. In chapter 3, uh, humanity rebels uh, and uh, brings the curse of sin, which is death. And due to the fall, we have a disposition towards sin. Uh, we are disposed to rebel against God rather than to submit to Him. And then uh, that continued to just get worse until we got to Genesis 6, where uh, we saw that wickedness was rampant. And so God judged the earth with a flood to, to start over, so to speak. But He saved Noah and his family as a remnant. Um, but uh, Noah was not the answer. Noah was not. Remember, God had promised in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So that was the hope, even in the midst of the curse of the fall. Well, Noah was not uh, the seed of the serpent, the, or the uh, seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent because Noah too was sinful. Um, and you know, so in chapter 9, we see Noah uh, drunk and naked in his tent. Uh, so just like Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed after they sinned, as soon as you know, uh, Noah and his family and endure the flood. They get off the boat. Uh, Noah is right there in his sin again. And then we get to Genesis chapter 11 and things have gotten so bad already that all of humanity is rebelling against God and they're in their pride. They're trying to build a tower up to the heavens. And so God disperses humanity by confusing the languages. So, I mean, the, the point is, is that we're seeing already a cycle develop in Genesis chapter one to 11, where God blesses uh, man, man rebels against God. God brings judgment and uh, restores, but man continues through this cycle. And so today uh, we're zooming in to Genesis chapter 12, where God's plan of salvation is going to start to come into focus. And we're going to see that the, uh, the seed of the woman uh, is going to come through the line of Abraham. So I want to read uh, verses 1 to 3 in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to camp out in Genesis 15 today. Uh, but I want to read the first three verses of chapter 12 to introduce you to Abraham. So here's what it says. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God chose Abraham and specifically blessed him and said, I will make you a great nation. And God 
what's happening here is that he is choosing Abraham and his lineage as a covenant people, as a people for his own possession. And God told him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, and so again, this is cluing us that the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head is going to come from the line of Abram. Uh, but there's a couple of problems. Because to see, uh, to be a great nation, there's a couple of things you need. First of all, you need descendants. And second of all, you need land. And Abram didn't have either one of those things. Right here in chapter 12, God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is where he was living. And he says, go to the land that I will show you. Doesn't tell Abram where to go, just says, I'm going to show you this land. And so he calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, But Abram also happened to be childless. His wife, Sarai, was barren. She could not have children. So he's already 75 years old. He doesn't have any children. He can't have any children. He doesn't have any land. And yet God is promising, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. It would be hard to fault Abram for wondering how this is going to happen. And in Genesis 15, God reaffirms and reinforces his promise to make Abram into a great nation. You know, one of the things that is amazing about Abram here is that in Genesis 12, when God tells him to go, uh, even though Abram doesn't even know where he's supposed to go, he listens. He obeys God. He trusts God and he goes not knowing where God was leading and not even fully understanding how this promise is going to be kept, but he goes. And then in Genesis 15, where we're going to camp out, God comes and he again reaffirms this promise to Abram. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 15 and we're going to camp out there this morning. Here's what the word of God says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continued childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray now that you would help us to listen to what you have to say to us through your word this morning. Um, God, I pray that you would help me as I preach. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Help all of us as we listen to what you have to say to us this morning. Soften our hearts. Lord, may you make our hearts malleable in your hands. May, uh, God, you shape us and may you form us. May you instruct us in the way that we should go. God, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you this morning as we look at at the foundation of what it looks like, of how to have a relationship with you, oh God, I pray that this morning you would open up the eyes of anyone who, who doesn't have that relationship with you, who, who is not saved by faith. I pray that this morning you would give them that gift of faith and that they would believe. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so there's two parallel parts here in this passage. Uh, you kind of break the passage up into two parts, verses 1 to 6 and verses 7 to 21. Uh, and so in verses 1 to 6, God is reaffirming his promise of descendants to Abraham. And then in verses 17, 7 to 21, he's reaffirming his promise of land. And both of these promises sandwich a really important verse, which is Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so we're going to be unpacking that a lot shortly. Uh, but there's a parallel between both of these promises, and there's actually, uh, you'll see it on uh, the screen there. So uh, in each of these promises, there's kind of a pattern that we notice. First, God initiates by making a promise. So he does that in verses 1 and verse 7. Then Abraham questions. So Abraham, Abraham kind of asks, how? How is this going to happen? How is this possible? And then each time God reaffirms his promise. And so uh, in uh, verses 1 to 6, the way that God reaffirms his promise is he takes Abram outside and he says, look up at the stars, Abram. Uh, can you count the stars? So if you can count the stars, then you can number the uh, amount of offspring that I'm going to give you. What, what's God doing here? Well, essentially, he's taking Abram outside and he's reminding Abram of who he is. He's saying, Abram, I'm the God that created all of these. I'm the God that knows them by name. If I can create all of these stars, do you not think that I am uh, able to keep this promise? I couldn't help but think of Isaiah 40, 25 and 26. And, and maybe God said something like this to Abram when he took him outside. Uh, it says, the Lord says in Isaiah 40, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing, excuse me, by the greatness of his might, he calls them by name, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So God's like, Abram, <laughs> I created all of these. I brought them out. I know them by name. I am able to deliver on my promise. And so he reaffirms the promise of descendants. And then in verse 7 to 21, God reaffirms his promise to give Abram land. How does he reaffirm this promise? Well, he does something a lot different in, uh, in this episode. It's a little more puzzling. In verse 8, Abram asks God, 
uh, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? And God tells him to go kill some animals, cut them in half, and lay them opposite each other. And to our modern minds, this makes no sense. You know, you might be reading that and going, what in the world is going on here? This seems a little bit weird. Well, but to Abram, he would have known exactly what was happening here. Or at least that's, he thought he knew exactly what was going on here. This was a, actually a fairly common oath ceremony or covenant-making ceremony back during this time period. And typically what would happen is that usually the subservient party uh, would, uh, would enter into a covenant agreement with uh, maybe a landowner or a king or something like that. And what would happen is they would make a pact and the subservient party would walk through the pieces, the halves of the animals, swearing to keep the terms of the covenant or to be cursed like uh, the animals if the covenant vows are broken. So essentially, as they were walking through these animal halves, they're saying, if I don't keep the terms of this covenant, then may I become like these animals. And so this is certainly what Abram thought was about to happen. Abram thinks, okay, God's going to have me, you know, Abram's like, God, how do I know I'm going to possess the land? And so what Abram's expecting is that God's going to go, okay, Abram, here's what you need to do. I need you to do this, this, and this. And if you do your part and you'll do this, then you'll get the land. And so Abram's expecting that he's going to walk through the halves and that's how the covenant is going to be sealed. But the narrative takes a very surprising turn. In verse 17, that's not at all what happens. Look what happens in verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now here is what is so amazing about Genesis 15, 17. The fire pot and the torch represent God's presence. All throughout scripture, smoke and fire represent the presence of God. So what's happening here is that instead of asking Abram to fill the terms of the covenant and to walk through the pieces, God himself actually passes through the pieces and says, I will keep the terms of the covenant. God didn't ask Abram to do anything. Instead, he passes through these animal houses and he swears by his own name that he is going to accomplish the covenant from start to finish. God actually takes the threat of the curse upon himself and commits to keeping all of the terms. And for Abram's part, he simply needs to trust God. And that's exactly what he did. In verse 6, we see Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I keep, by the way, uh, uh, saying on accidentally saying Abraham and the reason uh, it says Abram here in Genesis 15 later on in the narrative God is going to change Abram's name to Abraham so at this point he is Abram so I apologize I, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm doing that I'm going to try to stick with Abram for the rest of the time but here's the deal here's what I want to show you from from this text okay God tells Abram I am going to accomplish the terms of the covenant from start to finish And this is precisely what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This passage is such a wonderful picture of the gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul, actually, this was one of his favorite passages. He quotes Genesis 15, 6 on three separate occasions. And the New Testament quotes it four different times. Paul's doing that to show that the foundation of our relationship with God is based on grace received through faith. It's a covenant of grace that is received through faith alone. 
God does everything from start to finish here with Abram. He chooses Abram. He initiates the covenant with Abram. He commits to fulfill the terms of the covenant for Abram. Abram is the passive party here. God is the main actor all throughout this story. Abram wasn't looking for God. God just shows up out of nowhere in Genesis 12 and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. All Abram does is believe. And that is what a relationship with God looks like. All throughout Scripture, you're going to see this. From the very beginning and all the way back in Genesis, we see it. This is a pattern. This is a foundation that God is showing us. And it's pointing us towards how we have a relationship with God through Christ. And yet, it is so hard for us sometimes to get this through our thick skulls, isn't it? And we have a tendency to make a relationship with God like a transaction. Like If I do my part, then God will do His part. Even Christians tend to do this. Paul actually wrote an entire letter about this very issue to the church in Galatia. They were drifting from the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. Uh, and I'm, we're going we're gonna to talk about what justification by faith alone means here in a minute. So what does Paul do to uh, address this? Well, he uses the example of Abram in Genesis 15 to remind us as believers how we're saved and how Genesis 15 points to salvation in Christ alone. Uh, so let's, let's talk for a few minutes about that, about what it means to be counted as righteous by faith. So the Galatians were listening to false teachers who told them what they, uh, that what they needed to do was to keep the law to be right with God. Yes, they said, you need to trust in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law to be right with God. That's, that's a necessary thing. And so Paul uh, is exasperated by this, and he writes to correct this serious error. Uh, so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he actually says this. He says, O foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So in other words, he's saying, uh, you know, um, he's saying, guys, you started off believing that you were saved simply by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Are you now going to start believing this teaching that says you also need to do these works? You need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul's response to this false teaching is found in verses 5 to 7 of Galatians chapter 3. He says this, he, said, he asked them, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. So, Paul actually quotes Genesis 15, 6 and uses the example of Abraham in Galatians 3 to show that we are made right with God by faith, not by works. And as Christians, we need a constant reminder of this. This is called justification by faith, and it is the heart of the gospel. To be justified means to be in right standing, or as Genesis 15, 6 puts it, to be counted as righteous means that you are deserving of acquittal. And when you try to earn God's favor or make up for your sin by doing good works or looking to your own performance or your own godliness, then you're basically trying to bribe God. You're saying, if I do this, then God is obligated to count me righteous. If I keep the law, God is obligated to, to, to say that I'm righteous. 
But Paul goes on to say in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3, he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And Martin Luther, the reformer, called the law the hammer of God. It's the hammer of God that God uses to crush the wickedness of self-righteousness and self-confidence. We, have, we, we are so prone towards self-righteousness and self-confidence as people. Boy, do we need this big hammer of God's law. I'm amazed at how almost everyone I talk to whenever we go and do evangelism thinks that they're a good person. You walk up to people and they say, yeah, I'm a good person. But what Galatians 3.10 teaches is that we no, nobody's a good person. We have all already failed. We've already failed to keep the law. God is holy and righteous and perfect. And so if you fail on just one point of the law, then you fall short. You are not righteous. You cannot stand before God and say, I deserve your blessing. The only thing we deserve is God's wrath. We're, we're already disqualified. So it makes no sense to try to be made right with the law. I mean, what a shame it would be if you showed up to you know, run a marathon you had signed up for and you show up to the race and you find out ahead of time that you're disqualified because you didn't register properly, but then you go and you run that entire race with all your heart anyways and you expend all this energy and you go the full 26.2 for what? It, it doesn't matter if you finish in first. It doesn't matter if you run faster than your neighbor. It doesn't matter if you set a world record. No matter what you do, you were disqualified before you even started. And that's exactly what it's like trying to make ourselves right with God by obeying the law. We are disqualified before we've even started because we are born into sin. We have all failed to keep the law. I like how uh, Jen and I are big fans of of Ray Comfort. Uh, Ray Comfort has a ministry called Living Waters and uh, you should go check out his YouTube channel. Basically what he does, he goes around and he shares the gospel with people with a camcorder and video records it, and you can watch him having gospel conversations. And one of the things that Ray does pretty much every time he shares the gospel is he'll do what's called the good person test. Because almost, I mean, hardly anybody that he runs into or that I run into uh, thinks that, admits that I'm, I'm unrighteous. Almost everybody thinks they're a good person. And so he'll just ask them. He'll, he'll run them through some of the Ten Commandments. Ask them, how many lies have you told? Well, you know, and usually we would, everybody would admit we've told lies, even if they're white lies. Well, what do you call a person who tells lies? They're a liar, right? Uh, how, you know, have you ever looked at some, a woman with lust before? Uh, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Well, that's incredibly serious. Uh, you know, blasphemy deserves the death penalty in the Old Testament. And so he'll just run them through the Ten Commandments and a quick walk through those alone quickly shows us that, man, like we're guilty. We fall short. And so then he'll ask, well, based on God's righteous law, if you were to stand before God, would you be innocent or guilty, heaven or hell? And the inevitable answer, if we're being honest, if we are being judged by the standard of God's law, the answer for every single one of us is guilty. We deserve hell. What we come to see in God's word is that we have all actually failed already to keep up our end of the covenant. We deserve wrath. So then what's the purpose of the law? Why does God give the law? Why does the law even exist if we don't even have a chance to keep it? Well, Paul answers that question also in Galatians chapter 3 in verses 18 and 19 and 22. Let me read it to you. He says this, 
he says, if the inheritance comes, and by the inheritance, he's talking about the covenant promise made to God's people in Genesis 15 through Abraham. He says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then skip down to verse 22. He says the scripture, another way of him saying the law, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what's Paul saying here? Well, like Luther said, the law is like a gracious hammer meant to shatter our delusion of self-righteousness. The, Paul drives this home, uh, point home further by pointing to Genesis 15. He's saying that God made the covenant with Abram before the law was given. So the law doesn't cancel out the covenant promise that God made with Abram. He's saying, guys, the promise, the inheritance comes by promise. The law was never meant to be the means by which you receive God's covenant promise. It was never meant to be the means by which you enter into a relationship with God. A relationship with God is based on a covenant and it's received by faith alone. God is the one who keeps the terms of the covenant, just like we see him showing Abram here in Genesis chapter 15. And the blessings are received by faith. That's why Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham kept the law of God perfectly and so God decided, God said, Abram, you are righteous, does it? And it doesn't say that. It says Abram believed God and by his faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is where the gospel comes in. When, when God's presence passed through those dismembered animals in Genesis chapter 15, God was teaching Abram and us that a relationship with him is founded upon grace. We can't be righteous. So God keeps the terms of the covenant for us. And not only that, but he takes the curse of the covenant upon himself. And so Paul drives this home as well in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So just like God did in Genesis 15, God has fulfilled the conditions of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we failed to live. Jesus came, dwelt among us, took on flesh, lived the perfect life we failed to live, perfectly obeyed the law of God, fulfilling the terms of the covenant. And then he died the death that we deserve to die on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, taking the wrath that we deserve. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this this transaction that takes place where uh, this great exchange where Jesus takes on our sin and the debt that it incurred and he gives us his free righteousness in exchange and that is enacted by faith. Or 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. 
So by faith, you are counted as righteous. It's as if you actually kept the terms of the law of the covenant, even though you didn't. That's how incredible, that's how this incredible gift of God's righteousness is received. When you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, his righteousness is imputed to you. That word imputed means that it's applied to you. It doesn't mean that it, it comes from within yourself. It means that it's put upon you from outside. We, we don't immediately become perfect people uh, you know, when we place our faith in Jesus. But in Christ, by faith, even though we're not perfect and I'm not perfect yet, by faith, I stand guiltless before God. God does not see my sin anymore. And if you are in Christ, He doesn't see your sin anymore. Legally, you are guiltless before God. You are blameless before Him. It's kind of like, um, you know, a good analogy would be marriage, right? The, the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. And so when, uh, when we are united to Christ in marriage, then everything that belongs to Him now becomes ours. And so uh, uh, his righteousness now becomes our righteousness uh, when we get married. When I married my wife, Jen, everything that belonged to me became hers. Uh, you know, not because she, she didn't bring it into the marriage, but it became hers by her union with me. And so when we trust in Jesus, when we have faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we're united with him. And so everything that belonged to him now belongs to us because we're united to him by faith. And that includes his perfect, spotless righteousness. That's now yours. You're clothed in it. You're robed in it. That's why, even though you might not feel uh, innocent and you might feel uh, guilt and shame, the reality of the truth of the gospel is that you are clean. You're guiltless before God. And that's the the gospel that we hold on to. It's a free gift of grace. Um, and, And again, it's so important to understand that this that transaction happens, that union happens by faith. Uh, Paul also talks about uh, the Abraham's example in Romans 4. In Romans 4.21, he says, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this means that by faith alone, you can receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? The entire gospel hinges on this doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is really where the good news of Jesus Christ departs from every other religion, every other, every false gospel out there. This is, this is the hinge. This is what the entire Reformation was about. What are you depending upon to be right with God? That's such an important question for you to really ask yourself and be honest with yourself about. Are, are you thinking that if you put in enough volunteer hours or if you give enough money to charity that you'll be a pretty good person and that that God'll let you into heaven are you depending upon church attendance or doing a 5 minute you know devotional reading in the morning um, to to be a good christian and and if you just keep doing those things then God'll probably let you into heaven are you depending upon being a good neighbor being an honest person being maybe like just being better than your neighbor 
to make yourself right with God? Are you depending on uh, religious rituals like going to confession and doing penance to, uh, to, to remove your sins and to be made right with God? Friends, depending upon anything other than Christ or doing anything in addition to Christ, uh, like, like trying to depend on, you know, you know, yeah, I need to trust in Jesus, but I also need to do this. I need to do these works in addition to trusting in Christ. That's the worst kind of sin because it's a rejection of the gospel. It's stating that Jesus' blood is not to, enough to cover your sin. And it comes from the pride of the human heart. Most false gospels and other religions depart here because they're based upon works, a works-based righteousness. And what they do is they belittle God's role in salvation and they magnify man's role in salvation. It, make, it makes it to where I play the determinative role in whether or not I'll be saved. This is what was happening in Galatia with the false teachers there. You know, yeah, Jesus died for you and he made it possible to where you could, you know, the doors open to salvation, but you've got to go the rest of the way. You've got to finish the job by, you know, keeping the law and by being circumcised and all this stuff, right? And we see this in, you know, uh, uh, Mormonism, you know, Jehovah's Witness, uh, you know, Islam is based uh, off of a, a works-based righteousness, and even in Catholicism. Uh, all of these, uh, you know, belief systems speak well of Jesus, but they belittle Jesus's role in salvation by adding works. And Catholicism is a huge one. I, I want to take a minute to, to talk about that. Some of you may be surprised to hear me say that, to hear me say uh, that uh Catholic doctrine is not the gospel of Jesus Christ found in the Bible. It's different. It is a different gospel. It's not the same gospel of Jesus Christ. This is huge because so many people assume that Catholic teaching is just another form of Christianity, like it's just another denomination, but it's not just another denomination. You see, according to Catholic doctrine, there are millions of people that believe that they play a part in their sins being absolved by, by doing the work of going to confession and of doing penance uh, and of performing the sacraments as a means of receiving the grace of God. But scripture teaches that there is nothing we can do to warrant God's forgiveness. And there is no part we play save for faith in Christ alone. That is the only way to receive the grace of God is the only way to be made righteous. Faith in Christ crucified and risen. And this is such a serious issue. And this is a serious issue for the Apostle Paul. This is why he wrote the letter to the Galatians. Salvation is literally on the line. The heart of the gospel is on the line. Listen to what he says in Galatians 5, 2-4. To to, uh, I mean, I, he puts it about as plain as you can. I'll, I'll just uh, read this to you. The, so that the believers in Galatia uh, were believing this false you know, teaching that, yes, you need to trust in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised in addition. So here's what Paul says to that. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He goes on to say, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Guys, our hope is in Christ alone or nothing. That's what Paul is saying there. If you want to try to add works in addition to having faith in Jesus, then it cuts you off from Christ. It's either Christ alone or it's no Christ at all. 
Now, is it possible for somebody in a Catholic church to be born again? Yes. In the same way that it's possible that somebody in a Jehovah's Witness church could be born again, but it wouldn't be because of the teaching of that of the Catholic church or because of the teaching of the Jehovah's Witness church. It'd be in spite of it. It would be because that person is reading that the Bible for themselves and they're reading uh, the doctrine of justification by faith that leaps off of these pages and they're believing it. But if you ascribe to you know the teaching um, of you know uh, salvation by faith plus works, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what form it takes. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for the eyes of Catholics to be open. And in evangelism, man, when somebody tells you that they are Catholic, Take them straight to Galatians chapter 3. Take them to Galatians chapter 5, verse 2 to 4. Don't assume that they're good because they say that they're Catholic. Because the reality is that there are millions of Catholics deceived by a false gospel of works. And it's the most wicked kind of false gospel because it's veiled as an angel of light. It presents itself as the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's not. And listen, if if you are a Catholic, I'm pleading with you to let the hammer of God's law graciously show you your need for a Savior, your inability to do anything to earn God's righteousness, your inability to play any part in receiving God's righteousness. And I pray that you'll see that the reason that the hammer of God's law is there is to drive you to the merciful Savior, to the gentle and lowly Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. It does, your salvation doesn't have to be on your shoulders, and it was never meant to be. You are not meant to carry that weight. You are not meant to have the burden of having to to go over these rituals over and over, to go to a priest and to go and, and do the sacraments. And How exhausting is that? Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You can be counted as righteous because of faith alone in Jesus Christ this morning. And you don't need a priest to go to God for you. You have a high priest in heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. And you can come boldly into the presence of God today through Him. I would urge you not to wait. Please despair of your own works and place your faith and trust in Christ alone. Repent of your sins Place your faith in Jesus. Trust in His atoning death and His his resurrection on your behalf and be saved this morning. No matter who you are, whether you're a Catholic, Muslim, agnostic, or maybe you coming into this morning, you thought you were a Christian your entire life, but you realize this morning you've been trying to earn God's favor for your entire life and your eyes are just now being awakened to the grace of God and how it's only by being united to Christ by faith that you can be counted righteous. I pray that you're seeing that this morning. I pray that today you're set free from the bondage of the law. And if you're a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that you are encouraged this morning um, by this incredible doctrine of justification by faith alone. I really really, uh, hope that you don't walk away saying, yeah, I knew this already. Another sermon on justification by faith. Like, yeah, I know that. I've heard this before. We could never hear this enough. Like guys, we, we need to hear this gospel over and over and over again. It's, it's, it's threaded all throughout Scripture from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation. This is what our relationship with God is founded upon. There's so much comfort here. This is where our assurance lies in the finished work of Christ. So 
like when Satan assails us, when he shoots his fiery darts of accusation and shame, it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone upon which we stand. It's so easy for us to slip into a workspace mindset as followers of Christ. I, I do it. You do it. I mean, just give you a couple of examples to think about. Uh, maybe, maybe you've done this before. Have you ever uh, felt like you need to try to stay pure so that God will bring you a spouse? Because if you mess up in your purity, then God might punish you by not letting you get married. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you ever uh, tried to give uh, tithes, an offering or a financial gift to the church um, so that you can get a raise at your job or you can get that promotion so that you can be blessed? There are, there are preachers out there lining up around the corner to tell you that message, to tell you that, that that's the gospel. It's a lie. It's works-based. If you ever uh, started looking at reading your Bible and prayer in the morning uh, as a way to you know, get the joy and peace uh, that you're wanting, like if I just read my Bible and if I just pray, then, then I can have some joy today and I can have some peace today. And if I don't, then I'm going to be miserable because I, I failed at being a Christian. And does that sound familiar to anybody else besides me? <laughs> Heck, we can even make faith into a work. You know, like, I don't have enough faith. I need to believe more. Uh, why, why, can't I, why, why can't my faith be stronger? Why can't, you know, I have a stronger uh, belief in Jesus Christ? Abram didn't have perfect faith either. I mean, we're going to see that in chapter 16. He's going, to, he, he's going to stumble. He's going to fall. He's going to try to help God keep his promise by going and sleeping with Hagar and say, here, God, look, I helped you out to keep your covenant promise. And uh, isn't that just like us? We try to help God keep his promises. And God says, hey, I'm going to do this from start to finish. I'm going to save you. I'm going to do all the work. All I want you to do, what does Jesus say in John 6? This is the work of God to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's it. When they ask Jesus, what do we do to inherit eternal life? Believe in me. Trust me. And then we say, yeah, but how can we help? And he says, no, no, no. I didn't say I want you to help. I don't want your help. I want you to believe. And so Abram tries to help in Genesis 16, but God is gracious. God is patient. He's merciful. Your faith itself is not what saves you. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's what your faith is placed in. Your faith, imperfect as it may be, will save you if it's in a perfect Savior. Okay, Your faith, imperfect as it may be, will save you if it's in a perfect Savior. You know, I can I can believe with all my heart that I can leap across the Potomac River, but it doesn't matter how strong my faith is that I can do that. Like the strength of my faith is not going to propel me across the Potomac River. But if I place my faith in an object like a boat, <laughs> then that can carry me across the Potomac River, right? And I don't have to have a ton of faith in the in that boat as long as I've got enough to get on it, right? Even if my faith is wavering while I'm on the boat and I'm unsure if the boat's going to take me across, as long as I'm in that boat, it's going to take me across the river. But if I just sit on the river and try to believe with all my heart that I'm going to leap across it, that doesn't do any good. It's not going to carry me across. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you've placed your faith in a perfect Savior, in a strong Savior, in a Savior who is sufficient, who has accomplished your salvation on your behalf, whose righteousness is perfect and it's been attributed to you because of that faith. You've been united to Him. So when you fall short and you fall into sin, which you will, 
and it'll be easier for you during that time to despair and to think that God is going to turn his face from you. But friends, listen, God will never turn his face from us. He turned his face away from Christ instead of from us. That's why John 10, 27 and 28 can be true, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's true because of justification by faith alone. We're united to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, I was reminded of the song this week, He Will Hold Me Fast. Um, uh, Sovereign Grace does this song, and uh, as do the Gettys, and it's an old hymn that's been redone. And there's a, a line in the second verse, and it says, or not a line, the second verse says this. It says, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. That's called good news. Brothers and sisters, we must cling to it, especially in dark times like these. And we must fight for it. We must fight for this justification by faith. Men have died for the doctrine of justification by faith. It's worth it. It's the foundation upon which a relationship with God is built. We lose justification by faith. We lose the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the testimony of God. From start to finish, He is the author and the finisher of our salvation. He will hold us fast.